0: Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Senior, the president of Gospel App Ministries, and welcome. Good news, we have been named the number 11 podcast in Feedspot's top 100 Christian podcast of 2021. So listen, thank you for your willingness to listen and to dialogue uh, in this rant. It's a different kind of format. We appreciate the uh, the audience. Love hearing feedback. Well, all right. Okay. Most feedback. Uh, if you ever want to talk, Bill at gospel-app.com. We love hearing from you. All right. We're going to wrap up the temptation narrative in, in Matthew and in the next two podcasts. The next podcast will be an expanded interpretive screen rendition of uh, Matthew 4, the, the first part of Matthew 4, and that'll be a lot of fun. But first, we have to take care of the third temptation, a review of how we got here. We're doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount, gospel rant style, and so, look, we're taking a few liberties, we're exploring some new ideas, we're dialoguing with other thoughts, all within the pale of good, but I I admit it's sometimes provocative biblical exegesis, staying faithful to the text, but it's possibly different than you've heard before. I get it. That's okay. It's a rant. You can disagree, and I'm going to lay out the case, and you decide if you buy in, right? And dialogue with me, bill at gospel-app.com. Don't be shy. Talk up. I said on one of the first podcasts that I think we have been a bit lazy looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and here's what I mean. Most often, we portray it primarily almost exclusively as a teaching of moral principles laid out by the greatest of all moral teachers, Jesus. Well, of course it is that, but my point is that it is so much more than that. And uh, if we just leave it at that, we're going to miss some very, very important things and risk misinterpreting it, okay? So, I would suggest you track us from the beginning. You can listen to earlier podcasts anywhere you get your podcast. Also, in the Gospel Rant, don't expect a lockdown, tight sermon format, or even feel, I mean, we'll get there, uh, my hope, uh, but this is a well-researched dialogue. That's where we want to keep it. And I'm, I'm willing to follow a few rabbit trails, set up a few straw dummies, if it leads to better dialogue, better understanding, and certainly more personal application, if it moves the ball forward. And you be the judge. In the end, I hope this will become a sermon series or a book or a series of Bible studies, God willing. And then it's going to have to be a lot more focused and linear and and edited, less ranting, but not now. So let's have some fun. Let's change lives, starting with mine. All right, one last intro note. Unlike so many other series on the Sermon of the Mount, we're not beginning in chapter 5. We're going all the way back to Matthew 3, the beginning of Jesus' adult ministry, because we believe that chapters three and four are important character development for Jesus. We learn so much about Jesus. And by the way, we're learning about Satan. We're learning about the kingdom of God. And if we don't do justice to Matthew's approach, his narrative approach, again, I think we're going to misinterpret some things when we listen to the Sermon on the Mount. We won't be in the right posture. Again, you be the judge. All right, so let's start off in Matthew 4, verse 8, the third temptation. All right, uh, interpretation note, if you've done a study on the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm talking to those pastors and teachers. Look, we know Matthew and Luke have different temptation orders, I mean, at least the last two temptations. Many suppose, and it seems credible, that Matthew's order is more likely, if you will, the historically accurate one. Matthew uses the connections in the Greek, then, tote, and again, Palin, in the second and third temptations. And that implies order. This happened, then happened, and again, this happened. And Luke just uses the connector and Kai to link them, which can imply not a lot of order, just a jumble. Perhaps. It could be. And, and I think it sounds reasonable, but here's my point. It doesn't really matter. Gospel writers are not always giving us or expected to give us chronological events, account of the events, but they're going to organize their material and thematic and narrative ways that communicate something not just of the events of Jesus's life, but the significance of Jesus's life, and they'll change the order in order to accomplish that. The headlines, right? And they're going to tell their stories, and if changing the order helps them highlight the narrative, make their point a legitimate biblical spirit-filled point, and moves the story forward, it's kosher. It's kosher in their day and, and time. We just have to deal with it. Writer Kate Flurnoy says this, quote, A good rule of thumb to keep in mind is that every scene should contain something that changes the flavor or direction of the plot, however subtly, on whatever level. It might simply be a teensy forward step in a character's arc, or it might be a mind-boggling discovery about the villain that will end up contributing to his downfall. It might even just be a tiny smidgen of foreshadowing, but it has to be there, close quote. And this is what Matthew is doing. We're, we're learning about the character arc of Jesus and the kingdom. We're seeing the villain. We're, we're seeing the uh, foreshadowing of the end. Uh, it's brilliant, actually. So for some commentators, they're suggesting that for Matthew, the, the big end game was Jesus's rule over the nations. And so he highlights that for Luke. Maybe it's Jesus's authority over God's house, over religion, and both are true, right? And so, chill. Again, this is one of the reasons we don't start at Matthew 5, but we begin our dialogue and wrestling at the beginning of Jesus's adult ministry, because every scene is brilliantly put together. I mean, the Spirit ultimately wrote it and moves the plot forward. We just have to figure out, and this is the fun part, what's being emphasized, what, what the direction is, what are the simple little clues. And then when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest series of teachings ever, we're going to be far more prepared. All right, third temptation. Then Satan, then the Diabolus in the Greek, took him to a very high mountain. Notice, Jesus is a willing victim. He has, for his own reasons, submitted, humiliated himself to the ugliest of the creation. Satan objectifies him, patronizes him, abuses him further, takes him to a a very high mountain, and he's willing to go. So what mountain? Well, I'm going to go out on a little limb and say that in Matthew's day, all who heard this would have assumed that he was talking about Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, if you're in Israel, it's the mountain you can always see from just about anywhere in Israel. It's in the north. It was at the crux of the kingdoms of the world, figuratively, because it's at the hub of the Levant, this area between nations. And the international trade highways, uh, where armies go and commerce goes, it crisscrosses at its root. It oversees caravans and armies from all nations in the biblical world. So it's got to be Mount Hermon if Matthew wasn't being metaphorical, right? And if if he wasn't, this is the mountain. Back to the text, and showed him all kingdoms of the world and their splendor. You know, it's fascinating how we read things and just bounce by them and don't fully see. Why would Satan think that Jesus, the Son of God who dwelt in the heavens, (laughs) would be at all impressed by the splendor and radiance, the doxa, the glory, Of the world's kingdoms. Really? What was glorious from Satan's point of view? Was it the architecture? Was it the beauty of the image bearers of God? All of their magnificent accomplishments? Is that what he showed Jesus? Was it how man had shaped? Power structures and authority over other men and other women and other races? Was it the rampant wars and prejudice and racisms and injustices and sexisms and other isms? The economic imbalances between the wealthy haves and the impoverished have nots? The abusive religions, some in the name of God, that enslaved people, that abused people, that misled people? What exactly was Satan pointing to? It's not like he directed Jesus to a beautiful sunset. Okay, that could be something. No, the temptation is a total disconnect. Satan, read the room. Jesus had total different lenses. Eden was beautiful, but now everything's scarred. Everything's broken. Everything is dehumanifying. It it's it's enslaving. Was, was Satan aware that Jesus had come specifically to rescue these beat up people from this present evil age? Whose Glory? What glory! It was in, it was tattered, it was in rags. These were people who regularly, daily struggled with enoughness and connectedness, shame and loneliness. Was he in anywhere aware that when Jesus looked down, he didn't see glory, what he sees is abuse, deception. God's image bearers enslaved every one of them, uh, to one degree or another, and can only feel urgency and, and compassion. Splaginitzomai and other parts of the, the Greek. What what would them bowing down to Jesus have felt like to Jesus, right? He came to rescue these folks, not to be worshiped by them. So Satan, really? What in Caesar's court would have caught Jesus's attention? What did he see in the court of Herod that he wanted to bring back to heaven with him as a souvenir, you know, a remembrance, or something that he could set up shop and sell with the angels something they needed in heaven. Nothing, nothing beautiful. Verse 9, Satan says, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. All right, some speculate that Satan's subtlety was to have Jesus imagine a way out of God's harsh plan, right? The plan that was going to lead him to Gethsemane and then to Golgotha, right? Maybe, it, but it's unlikely that Satan knew what was going to go down I think God would have held those cards close to his chest. But maybe if Jesus can get rulership, which is the ultimate goal, without that, why not take it? Right? Why, why wait when you can do it now? I think that's a bit simplistic uh, for my taste, a bit too transparent for Jesus. But maybe uh, you can argue that, Bill at gospel-app.com. Maybe the temptation is to rust the request to God for rulership. Uh, You know, but you can have them now. Satan says. But again, you know, read the room from Jesus's point of view. You know, Satan, why would I ask you for the nations? They were already given to me by my Father. All I need to do is go and ask Him, and then Satan would respond, "Well, okay, then do it. Dare you? Maybe." Again, I think it's strained. Jesus is on mission, and his mission as the incarnated Savior Redeemer is to come and rescue these nations nations that have abandoned their splendor, given it away, betrayed it. They are a hot mess. What would having them bow to him add to Jesus and add to Jesus's glory and to his narrative? They needed a rescue. That's why Jesus came. This isn't the end of the mission for Jesus. Jesus wants to rescue the redeemed, and then they will worship him. So Jesus has come to redeem the splendor of the nations, to save the dehumanized, Uh, celestially isolated and lonely, disattached humanity. And to accomplish this mission it's going to require rescue. And and for that, he's going to submit to God's ongoing direction. Uh, And also, it should be pointed out, Satan doesn't have that authority. I've heard this said. He can't make good on this promise. He never has had that authority. And some, some take this as a proof text that he has rulership over the nations for now. And there's no biblical way. Listen again to Psalm twenty, uh, Psalm 2, and this was the psalm that was implied at the baptism of Jesus. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Okay, that's what Satan sees as he looks out. The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their change, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Here's the baptism. Today I've become your father. Ask of me, says God, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So who has that authority? Never. Satan is God. God is the authority. So, are you telling me Satan was lying? Yeah, come on. Really? Are we surprised? Satan has no more authority to hand out jobs in the kingdom than I do. Bottom line, it's all God's. Jesus gets that. So, what is happening here that moves Matthew's narrative of Jesus uh, and Jesus's mission forward? Remember, in in the last podcast, I said that deep in the dark shadows of our midbrain, that's humanities, there are two subconscious questions that are always being asked, demanding answers. They drive us motivationally, relationally, identity-wise, and here they are. Number one, can I count on you? Is there somebody I can say I can count on? And This is connectedness or lack of connectedness. Uh, do you have my back uh, is there someone who is going to stick around not abandon me or not turn on me that i can that i can count on and we considered that the last time in the second temptation in the third temptation we're going to be looking at something different this is the second question am i worthy of your love or anyone's love and this is enoughness do i have that worth where I think other people approve of me, appreciate me, like me, acknowledge my lovability. Am I worthy of of glory? When I look into people's eyes, are they excited to see me? Am I enough? Or do I fall short of everybody's expectation? What am I really worth in the eyes of others, of anyone, in the reflection of the mirror? Do I have worth, value? We all struggle with enoughness. Enoughness is related to our present experience of value and worth, uh, self-esteem in our eyes, and, and how we think others see us. Here is the author David Zoll in his book, Seculosity. Quote, listen carefully and you'll hear the word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, Desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. Close quote. I mean, you can almost hear Satan's temptation in that quote. If Satan gets it, that we're desperately looking for enoughness in the mirror, in our own brains, in the eyes of others, and in the eyes of God. See, we're not only. Uh, created to be connected, that's what we looked at uh, in in the last temptation, but to feel enoughness. We have this critical inner voice in our brain that keeps telling us we're not enough, that we've fallen short. So these questions are everywhere in our relationships with self and God and others, the world. So Satan, he's so good at this, he sees this, he knows this, and he's going to test the water to see. And related to Jesus, he's going to test the waters to see that at the Incarnation, did Jesus pick up this very human insecurity or not? Or, and this is a big or, did Jesus' ongoing experience of his relationship with God the Father and the Spirit fill both of those cups, connectedness and enoughness? If he felt presently enough and connected related to the Trinity, these last two temptations would just fall flat on their faces, which they did. So if Jesus was feeling after 40 days of being alone, crying out to God the Father and not hearing squat, that he wasn't enough anymore, that he wasn't the son that God thought he was at the baptism, that he wasn't lovable still or adorable still or worthy of glory still, then this temptation would be very powerful, right? A little praise and worship from humans held out there, the carrot on the stick, that would look pretty good to Jesus. So Satan's implying this, quote, Look, I will make the hearts of all the powers and nations bend the knee to you right now. Won't that feel confirming? Your glory cup will immediately be filled. Isn't that what you want? I can make it happen. Just ask me, bow and submit to me in the same way that you've been submitting to him. And, you know, by the way, how's that been working out for you? Sure, God has made you king in Psalm 2 at the baptism, but he's withheld the experience, not me. Time for your humiliation is over, O Son of God, close quote. Right? That's very tempting to somebody who's feels like and has been living as if they were not enough. Uh, but what Satan is coming to see, and, and the readers begin to see that Jesus' glory cup, Doxa cup, is still full. He doesn't need a drip 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 of refilling or re-experiencing. But we do, right? I do. God had already given Jesus' rule over kings, Psalm 2. Uh, The experience of it is coming. So this temptation wouldn't interest Jesus, but it would interest the people on the hillside, the Sermon on the Mount, because to a man, to a woman, to a boy, to a girl, they lacked enoughness, probably chronically. And remember the Grand Inquisitor's question to Jesus from the last time. Do you, Jesus, believe that even for a moment, humans could face such a temptation? And again, the answer, looking at the people on the hillside, is hell no. They would struggle to resist any offer of enoughness of any kind, because they were diseased, they were sick, outcasts from tribe and family, apparently under a curse from God, so they weren't even enough for God. Their substance cups were cracked and empty and leaking. They were willing to follow and obey anyone who offered relief from their pain of not-enoughness. And we saw that when Jesus healed, they desperately followed, right? Jesus is looking for more. Um, so, Jesus isn't primarily going to offer them better social or economic status, better reputations, good jobs, health, so they can reenter their rightful positions and their tribes. I mean, he will offer some of that, but that's not his end point. He is going to powerfully speak over them and create an enoughness miracle. Blessed are you. So he could have said in, in David Zal's seculosity language, enough for you. And by the miracle of Jesus speaking, of God speaking and creating, Barah, right, in, in Genesis 1, they would have actually felt it. This is the remarkable part. Their critical inner voices would have been shut up just for a moment, glorious silence. Their brains would have danced for just a little bit with God. They would have felt like chosen sons and daughters to whom great glory was due. The king stood before them and said, You're enough. Some were healed physically and others not, but they all would have experienced a miraculously celestially sourced enoughness. That's what we're looking for, people. That's what I'm looking for. That's what we we expect when we go to, to church on Sunday to experience this enoughness from God, to see his eyes laughing over us, glad that we're there. And by the way, we've all experienced that enoughness once. We've tasted it once when we became his sons or daughters. And we will experience it permanently in heaven. But I want it more now. I like it. I want it even a little bit. But for that to happen, I need a mini miracle. I can't make that happen. I can't choose. I don't have the muscle group. So shameless plug again for the dance, -dance www.thedance.org look, this is our goal. This is why we created it for regular, beat-up Christians who need to feel more enoughness to begin to feel it. Uh, And connectedness as well. The same C&E that Jesus purchased for us 2,000 years ago, and we haven't experienced for a while, maybe a long time, because we just get beat up. I get it that it's hard to imagine that you could access C&E online in under two hours. But hey, we can show you uh, real people, the testimonies, and we can show you real results. Think of it as a spiritual health spa, a mud bath, I guess. I mean, I've never been to a mud bath, but that's what they say. And by the way, it's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If it doesn't work for you, money back, not a problem. It's, it's really ex- inexpensive anyway. As you can do it on any smart device. So simple. Just go to ww.the-dance.org and give it a shot. Merry Christmas, then dance a little. All right, Jesus's response, Matthew 4.10. Jesus said to Satan, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So in the end, Jesus, the son of favor, was raised up in glory. And this, this is the end of the pattern. Uh, there's incarnation, deprivation, then glory. Uh, so he was fed and no doubt well-fed. There's no need to think of this as a paltry meal of crusty bread and and cheese. Angels, oh my gosh, angels hosted him and took care of his well-being. I mean, they honored him. They glorified him. This was an act of worship. He would have felt, I mean, humanly speaking, right? He would have felt enoughness and connectedness. He would have felt worth. He would have felt connected. His experience of his relationship with his father would have been powerful. It wasn't said, but you know, he felt, well done, good and faithful servant. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He felt the father's, uh, he felt he heard it in the voice. He saw it in his eyes. He, he heard his father and the spirit dancing and Satan's substitutionary plans of offering something less than that i mean so i mean now you can see just how thin that was and how deceptive that was Satan's version of enoughness and connectedness it, man those are temporary hits and they can be very addictive but man they're nothing compared to what what Jesus has purchased already but and this is the big but God's plan i have to say this i mean to be honest God's plan still made made Jesus experienced 40 days of humiliation, hunger, connectedness and enoughness, deprivation. I mean, 40 days. Uh, This is worthy of being noted. In the end, the relationship was shown to be still wonderful and unharmed and untattered. But in the middle, silence and pain, silence and doubts, silence and questions, Uh, that nasty critical Voice, man, you can hear it over and over and over. I hate this approach, but I see it I see the model littered throughout the Bible. Israel in Egypt, Israel in exile. Remember Simeon and Anna and the Christmas story, how long they waited? Mary's nine months of pregnancy, right? Very symbolic. David waiting to be the king. It's it's just page after page of waiting in pain and deprivation and doubt and temptation, brain anxiety, lack of connectedness and enoughness. And don't forget, somehow this moves the mission forward. And, and the mission, remember, is to rescue unlovable rebels to glory. All right. So how was Matthew's narrative ball moved forward? Because Jesus endured 40 days of deprivation and pain and was attacked by Satan's best stuff. Again, we said this is probably not uh, oh my gosh, who's gonna win? God is actually using this to teach us something, prepare us for the rest of the kingdom ministry, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount. All right. Well, clearly now we have the book on Satan. We know what he's going to do. His best three-pronged attack, uh, not necessarily in series. You know, you can pick and choose. You can pile on. So here we go. He he will tempt you. And and matter of fact, afterwards I'm going to ask you to to tell me how you resonate with this. Give me some examples. Bill at the Gospel Ash. I'm sorry, bill at gospel-app.com. So he will tempt you in three areas of pain and deprivation and anxiety. Three areas. And listen closely. This is worth the price of admission. It's not good news. At least I don't like it. But it's important. Satan will tempt you as you are feeling deprived and physical hunger or pain of many kinds, any kind of deprivation, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And by the way, Keep in mind the people at the foot of the mountain that Jesus gathers as his first audience, his first church, uh, look, if you struggle financially and poverty, physical pain this chronic, you can't get rid of addictions, diseases, COVID, pestilence, joblessness, loss of loved ones, some scar, some ugliness, you, are you disabled? His approach would be one degree or another, look, you can't trust God for your well-being. You have to take matters into your own hands and just forget God altogether. I've got your back on this. Just follow me. I'll, I'll throw you some crumbs. Stop looking to the heavens. There's nothing there for you. You know that, don't you? Close quote. Very powerful, very compelling to people who are chronically being uh, pummeled. And, and their midbrain is screaming and their critical inner voice is beating them down. And it's not all your fault. The truth is that spirit faith in that context is superhuman. So I can't say just believe, because what you need, what I need is spirit faith, right? And that's not in you. It's not a muscle group you have. You need a miracle fruit of the spirit faith. You need a rescuer. The second arrow in Satan's quiver has to do with your very human feelings of disconnectedness. Your answer to the question, can I count on God, might be... I don't think so. Or maybe it's a hard no. Why? Because you have felt alone. You've felt celestially lonely, isolated, unwilling to risk another attempt at that relationship. Because no matter what you do, you just can't gin up those early feelings that God cares squat about you. He seemingly has let you down again and again and again, and you're filled with resentment and cynicism and, and wondering if God loves other people, but not you. And you've done the equivalent of jumping off the temple and no one caught you. So why do it again? And you have the relational scars to prove it. You've been to this church and that church, and, and every one of them has let you down. So to you, a very real person, and believe me, there are a lot of you out there in the pews and leaving the pews and have already left the pews, I am not going to shame you and tell you to stop complaining and try harder. No, You've been there, done that. What I'm going to say is just stop it. Stop what you've been doing. How's it gone for you anyway? Instead, I mean, you can do this or try it. Hold up empty, lonely, cynical, resentful hands and just ask. Child of God, just ask God to give you, specifically, to give you his power to make you feel loved and honored and special and worthy of your glory. Jesus has paid for that celestial connectedness 2,000 years ago. It's yours, and I get it. You haven't experienced it. So ask God for the power. Check out Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 to begin to feel it. And look, you're going to need great power, right? It's not all your fault because your critical inner spirit is well entrenched and has had a time-tested narrative developed. And it loves it, and it loves to share with you, it calls it, just how unlovable you are and such a disappointment and how far short of expectations you fall. So God will need to, like in Genesis 1, speak into a nasty formlessness and void before you feel like God really does have your back again. 100% of the people at the foot of the mountain would have agreed with you. They would have felt that, that God had abandoned them or God was against them, not an ally by any stretch. They wouldn't have felt like children of God. They also needed the miracle of celestial connectedness. This is why Jesus came to do that. Third arrow, Satan would have you feel like you're not enough, that you lack enoughness. You've fallen short of all relational expectations. You've messed it up. You haven't been faithful. You haven't been a good son or a good daughter. And so the answer to that internal question, am I worthy of God's love, must be (laughs) no, no of course not. Satan may take you to some other mountain and give you a vision of some substitute sense of worth and value. And I'm speaking a little metaphorically, but let me give you a solid example. Think of the siren call of gangs for somebody living in the impoverished urban setting, right? And these are children who are from birth immersed in a social tribe where enoughness is limited. And so what do they do? Some, many go to where they can feel enough, even like gangs, right? Uh, where even though it might be dangerous and destructive and against their father, their parent, the fam- family's wishes, but they're desperately needing to feel enough, feeling a little bit of value and worth, and and uh, uh, you know, pleased that you're there. It's not all their fault. We need enoughness. We are created to need that. So Satan says to these people, real people like me. You can t- you can take charge and become the man or woman, boy or girl, you are meant to be. But from Satan they will never hear. You are my beloved daughter or son, with whom I'm well pleased. They'll always, to one degree or another, walk around, face to the ground, in some shame, internally or externally. But not but then Jesus, and the people at the base of the mountain felt little to no glory on earth, from their people, their tribe, their family, their mirrors. They got where they stood. They were rejects. They were not enough. They were objects to be mocked, to be derided, to be abused, to be criticized, bullied, despised, until Jesus. And he looks out and says, no, blessed are you. You're the ones to be favored. You're going to rule the earth. Now, but as mentioned, they're beat up, all right? they're they're, they're fractured. They're not going to be able to hear that from their prefrontal cortex. They're not going to be able to believe Jesus based upon human belief. They will also need a power from God through the spirit in their inner being to feel that, to believe that is actually theirs. After all the self-talk to the contrary, and by the way, you too, me too. So stop trying to convince yourself of your worth to God. Your prefrontal cortex really is limited. It has almost no ability to pull that off. Your midbrain is ridiculously more powerful and has loads of brain chemicals in its war chest. If you want to feel worth and honor and glory and value that you're really deeply longing for, right, uh, then ask the Spirit. We can all do that. Ask the Spirit to give you access to power from God. You know, Ephesians 3, and then, then finally, so that you can begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of that love and that honor, not to mention. A sense of worthiness from him, a sense of enoughness from him that that he already paid for. Um, but you can begin to experience it a little bit more, really, noticeably more now. All right. So summary: Satan will will tempt you, this is his playbook, to feel deprivation of physical things and associated presence of pain. He will tempt you to feel your lack of connectedness and associated pains of loneliness, and will tempt you to feel lack of enoughness and the associated pain of shame and argue that god is to blame or you're to blame and say either i can fix it follow me or he'll say do what is right in your own eyes you know uh put on your big girl panties and and get on with your life and his his strategy is wildly successful for broken uh disconnected and not enoughness people for me too every day well please uh, this would be a great time to dialogue um i would love to hear do you agree does this help? Do you resonate with this? Can you, can you give me an, a story, a testimony of how Satan or your critical inner voice did this to you and caused you, led you to veer away from God, uh, caused you to feel resentment towards God or towards yourself? Has it made you to just want to give up? Or maybe you have given up. Uh, blame God. Blame yourself. I, I'm, I'm begging you to put it in your own words and share it with us. Bill at gospel No judgment here. Honesty is key because you're the ones that Jesus is speaking to on the mount, right? Blessed are you. So again, bill at gospel-app.com. Talk to us. So now we know Satan's strategy, and it's a damn good one, threefold. Does it work? Oh my gosh, yeah. And uh, you can just point to the masses Uh, The troubled, failed folks at the base of the Galilean Hill to testify to how effective it is. We have their testimonies. They're there. They struggle with physical, emotional, and spiritual deprivation, chronic of all kinds. They were celestially lonely and chronically not enough. People like you, people like me. And by the way, can we see now why Jesus would not just be giving these tragic people more ethical life skills? So here's how you can do better? (laughs) How do you think that would go over? Horrible. It would just shame them more. They would do what our young adults are doing in the church. They would just leave. <laughs> right? Why? Because they need a rescuer. They need a rescuer. So do I. So do you. Well, what have we learned about Jesus and Matthew's character development chapters? The Jesus who will stand and preach to that group at the at the base of the mountain. He's not just a qualified rabbinic teacher. He brings something far more unique to the table. Seven things. Number one. Jesus is hypernomian. No one who ever walked the planet had a higher view of the law or took it more seriously than Jesus. Two, he's come to rescue failures. He came for the lonely, the isolated, for those who feel like they aren't enough and are celestially disconnected. Three, he is a teacher of life principles, the greatest ever, but he's speaking to a people who will never accomplish it. He's speaking to failures. Four, when he speaks, actual power comes goes forth to change people's lives and identities to make them feel more enoughness and connectedness. Five, he regularly humiliates himself. He's comfortable doing that to rescue humiliated people. And no wonder they flock to him and don't feel shamed. Six, he's the only approved son of God. We saw that at the baptism. Seven, he's modeling the walk of spirit faith for us. Again, it's not natural to us, but it is to Jesus. In the next podcast, We'll look at my interpretive, expanded screen version of the temptation narrative for us. I hope this is eye-opening, and I I hope that it it really introduces the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And just for fun, you might want to read the first bit of the Sermon on the Mount to see if what we've been doing, if you followed us so far, if you can actually hear it differently, if you're drawn in in a different way. All right. Well, until next time, take heart, child of God. Hey, friends, Nicole Unis here from the How to Study the Bible podcast. I want to invite you to experience a fresh look at the story of Joseph and what it means for you today. Life can totally throw us for a loop, whether it's your family or your marriage, work, church, or something else entirely. Maybe you have found yourself in a season that you never would have expected and that you certainly wouldn't have signed up for. In this six-week Bible study together, we're going to talk about the biblical story of Joseph, a man who lived an unexpected life and trusted God through it all. We'll talk about the blessings he experienced, the promises God keeps, the way that tests of our character can actually refine our faith. We'll talk about patience. We'll talk about loss. Absolutely talk about redemption. So come join us for the six-week series over on the How to Study the Bible podcast. Can't wait to dive in with you.